Section six of Antonia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jake Melitzia. Antonia by George Sand. Translated by George Burnham Ives. Now, while the Countess was talking to Madame Thierry, and Julien to himself, Marcel Thierry was talking not far away with his uncle Antoine, the old bachelor, the ex-armourer, the rich man of the family. Gentle reader, as they used to say at the time when these events took place, be kind enough to accompany us to Rue Blomet from the Hôtel d'Estrel on Rue de Babylon, skirting the garden wall for five minutes, passing in front of the Louis Thirteenth pavilion then skirting the wall of another garden much larger than Madame de Strel's, along a lane grass-grown on the edges, muddy and full of holes in the centre, destined at some time to be an extension of Rue de Babylon, then turning to the left and passing along another street in embryo to the corner of Rue Blomet, where stands a large house of the Louis Fourteenth style of architecture, formerly the Hôtel de Melcy, recently purchased and occupied by Monsieur Antoine Thierry. If Monsieur Antoine Thierry would have allowed us to pass through his extensive grounds, we might have started from Julien's house and walked straight through the nursery to the rear of the mansion. But Uncle Antoine is determined to be master on his own estate, and he will not grant any easement whatsoever, even in favour of his brother's widow and son. Marcel, therefore, on leaving the Countess, had taken this walk, half in the city, half in the country, and now behold him seated in the rich man's study, formerly a boudoir with painted and gilded ceiling, now filled with shelves and tables covered with bags of seeds, specimens of fruit moulded in wax, and baskets of tools and other articles connected with horticulture. To reach this study, the proprietor's favourite retreat, he has had to pass through galleries and immense salons, overweighted with gilt decorations in relief, grand in conception, but blackened by neglect and dampness, for the windows are shut and the shutters tightly closed in all weathers. The rich man never tarries in those majestic apartments. He never receives visitors there. He never gives parties or banquets. He cares for no one. He is suspicious of everybody. He loves rare flowers and exotic shrubs. He also esteems the product of fruit trees, and he is constantly deliberating upon the trimming and grafting of his subjects. He overlooks and directs in person a score of gardeners, whom he pays handsomely, and whose families he takes under his protection. Never attempt to interest him in any other people than those who flatter or subserve his caprices or his vanity. This passion for gardening he acquired by a mere chance. One of the vessels which sailed to the far east on his account, and for his profit, brought from China a parcel of seeds, which he carelessly dropped in an urn filled with earth. The seeds sprouted, the plants grew and were covered with lovely flowers. The armourer, who did not anticipate that result, and who, moreover, had never in his life looked at a plant, paid very little heed at first. But another accident brought to his house a connoisseur who went into ecstasies and declared the priceless plant to be absolutely new and unknown to science. This discovery 
exerted a decisive influence on Monsieur Antoine's life. He had always despised flowers. It was probable that he would never really understand them, for he was entirely devoid of the artistic sense. But his vanity, which was stifling him for lack of nourishment, pounced upon that windfall, and pointed out to him the only way in which he could attain renown. He had a brother who painted flowers, who interpreted them, who loved them and gave his life to them. His brother was much admired. A trivial sketch from his brush made more noise than all of his older brother's great wealth. The older brother knew it, and was jealous of him. He could never hear the word art mentioned without shrugging his shoulders. He considered that the world was unjust and idiotic to be amused by trifles, and not to admire the shrewdness of a man who, having started from nothing, counted his gold pieces by the shovelful. He was disappointed, perturbed in mind. But suddenly all was changed. He too was going to become a celebrity. The flowers which his brother summoned forth from the canvas he would summon from the earth, and they would not be mere everyday flowers, which everybody knew and could name at sight. They would be rarities, plants from the four corners of the world, which scholars would have to cudgel their brains to define and classify and baptise. The most wonderful should bear his name. It had been suggested that his name should be given to several of his nurslings, but there was no hurry since his collection was enriched every year by some marvel from the metropolis. He determined to wait, and was still waiting for a certain lily, which was likely to surpass all the rest, and which should bear, in addition to its generic name, the specific designation of Antonia Thierry. There was still time enough, for the uncle, although seventy-five years old, was still hale and hearty. He was a short man, rather slight, with a very good figure, but the hands hardened by constant contact with the soil, the skin tanned by constant exposure to the air, the neglected hair and dusty clothes, the back bent by bodily toil, presented the incongruous image of a villager with rustic manners, tenacious in his ideas of an overbearing and surly disposition, ungrammatical, imperious and peremptory, planted in the heart of Paris, in a mansion of which he was the heedless and preoccupied master. Marcel saluted his uncle with more familiarity than deference. He knew that flattery would be a waste of time, that the ex-armourer could be brought to terms on any subject only by a contest in obstinacy, in harsh language at need. He knew that his first impulse would be to say no, that no perhaps would be his last word, but that in order to obtain one poor yes among a hundred no's, he must fight without losing heart for a moment. Marcel was of a stout temper, it was a family trait, and he was so accustomed to fighting, especially against his uncle, that he derived a sort of painful pleasure from that occupation, which would have disgusted an artist in an instant. I have brought you something to sign, he began. I will not sign anything. My word is good enough. True, with those who know you, everybody knows me, almost everybody, but I am dealing with idiots. Come, sign, sign. No, you might just as well sign it. My word's as good as gold. All the worse for the man who doubts it. Then you will see the creditor take possession of the house at Sèvres. He will be satisfied then, no doubt, but until then he will doubt my authority. So you have a bad reputation, have you? Apparently. 
The idea of your saying that. What do you want me to say? If I should say no, you would not sign, and I want to induce you to sign. Oh, you do? Why, I should like to know. Because it bores me. Tires me and annoys me to return to Sèvres and wait for them to make up their minds to come to see you, when the dispatch of this paper by my clerk will remove all difficulties and save me expense and many steps. Do you understand? You do whatever you please with me, replied the armourer, taking his pen. He dipped it in the ink three times before deciding, read and re-read the document whereby he guaranteed the payment of the last six thousand francs of his brother's debts, looked Marcel in the eye to see if he was anxious or impatient, and, seeing that he was unmoved, regretfully renounced the pleasure of driving him into a passion. He signed the paper and tossed it in his face with a wicked laugh, saying, Off with you, rascal! You never come to my house unless you want to get something out of me. You might have guaranteed the debts in my place for your rich enough. If I were, be sure that it would be done already. But I am making the final payments for my practice, and I cannot deceive Julian any longer as to the sacrifices I am making for him. He is deeply concerned. His mother is in despair. Oh, his mother, his mother, sneered the rich man in a tone of profound aversion. You are not fond of her, as everyone knows, so she will never ask you for anything, never fear. But I am fond of my aunt, if you have no objection, and Julienne adores her. Between them, between us three, if necessary, we will have everything paid within two years, and I flatter myself that you will not have to spend a sou. Well, I don't flatter myself that I shall not. No matter. I will do them this favour, which will be the last and the first too, my dear uncle. And as the document was signed, folded and safely in his pocket, Marcel added, resting his elbows on the table and looking his uncle straight in the face, Do you know, my dear uncle of the good lord, you must be a very mean fellow to allow your brother's country house to be sold. Ah, there we are again, shouted Monsieur Antoine, rising and smiting the table a genuine peasant's blow with his fist. You would like to see me use my money, earned by the sweat of my brow, to pay for the follies of a spendthrift? Since when have artists needed to have houses of their own, and fill them with a heap of gimcracks that cost the eyes out of your head, and make gardens for themselves, with bridges and summer-houses, when they don't even know how to grow a bit of milkweed. What difference does it make to me whether my brother's folly is sold, and his widow doesn't now have any great chefs in her kitchen, and great noblemen at her table? They made all the trouble for themselves when they chose to receive counts and marquises, and madame would say, My house, my servants, my horses. I knew well enough where all that nonsense would bring them up. And now today they find they need the old rat who lives in his corner like a wise man and a philosopher, despising society, scorning luxury, and giving all his time to useful work. They lower their crests and put out their paws. And he, he wouldn't give anything from pity. Those people don't deserve it. He gives from pride, and that's how he gets revenge. Go and tell that to your aunt the beautiful princess in distress. That's the errand your mean dog of an uncle gives you to do. Go, I say, you dog of a pettifogger. What are you standing there for, staring at me? Marcel was in fact studying his uncle's expression and attitude with his sharp grey eyes, as if he would search the lowest depths of his conscience. Bah! he exclaimed abruptly as he rose. 
You are very harsh, very mean, I say it again, but you are not so cruel as that. You have some reason for hating your sister-in-law, which nobody has ever been able to understand, which you don't understand very clearly yourself, I fancy, but which I shall succeed in unearthing, my dear uncle, never fear, for I propose to go to work upon it, and you know that when I have set my heart upon a thing, I am like you, I never let go. As he spoke, Marcel kept his eyes fixed on the rich man, and he detected a notable change in his manner. A sudden pallor drove the coarse flush from his face, which was already burned afresh by the sun of the new spring. His lips trembled. He pulled his hat down to his bushy black eyebrows, turned his back, and went out into his garden without a word. It was not a garden with little pieces of rockery, little summer-houses, and little terracotta cows lying in the grass, like those which were so common at that period, in imitation of the rustic style adopted at Trianon. Nor was there an undulating lawn with winding paths, clumps of trees at regular intervals, and truncated columns reflected in limpid ponds, like the garden of the Hôtel d'Estrelles, one of the first picturesque attempts at the modern garden at Langlaise. Nor were there the old-fashioned flower-beds and long regular borders of the time of Louis XIV. Everywhere the ground was turned up and cut by Monsieur Antoine's experiments. On all sides were beds in the shape of baskets, hearts, stars, triangles, ovals, shields, and trefoils, surrounded by green borders and narrow paths, forming a perfect labyrinth. There were flowers of all sorts, beautiful or curious, but deprived of all their national grace by cages made of rushes, nets of wire, umbrellas of reeds, supports and props of all sorts, to protect them from being marred by the dirt, burned by the sun or broken by the wind. His rose bushes, being constantly trimmed and watered, had an artificial look. They were so exceedingly tidy and shiny. His peonies were ball-shaped at the top, like a grenadier's pompon, and his tulips shone like metal in the sun. Around the flower garden were immense, melancholy-looking nurseries, like rows of stakes with scraggy bunches of leaves at the top. All this rejoiced the horticulturist's eyes and banished his gloom. A single corner of his garden, nearest the pavilion occupied by Madame Thierry, offered a pleasant promenade. That corner he had devoted for twenty years to the acclimatation of exotic ornamental trees. They were beautiful now, and cast considerable shade. But Monsieur Antoine, as it was no longer necessary to take particular pains with them, had almost lost his interest in them, and much preferred a shoot of pine or acacia, just raised under glass. His hothouse was wonderfully beautiful. He hurried thither to bury the bitter memories which Marcel had recalled. He went in and out among his favourite plants, the lilies, and after assuring himself of the good health of those which were in bloom, he halted beside a small porcelain vase, wherein an unknown bulb was just beginning to put forth shoots of a dark and glossy green. What will this be? he thought. Will it mark an epoch in the history of gardening, like so many others that owe their fame to me? It seems a long while since anything has happened in my garden, and people don't talk about me so much as they ought to. Meanwhile, Marcel went away, deep in thought, for Monsieur Antoine Thierry's miserliness was of a very curious sort. The curious thing about it was that Monsieur Thierry was not miserly. He did not hoard his money, he did not lend money, and never had done so. 
he denied himself nothing that caught his fancy, and he even did a good deed sometimes under the spur of self-love. How did it happen that he had let slip so excellent an opportunity of purchasing his late brother's property for his nephew? That generous performance would have given him much more celebrity than the future Antonia Thierry. That is precisely the problem which Marcel was trying to solve. He knew that the old armourer had always been jealous, not of his artist brother's talent, which he despised, but of his renown and social success. But should not that jealousy have died with old André? Ought his widow and son to have that unfortunate inheritance forced upon them? End of section 6